Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Do you believe in ghosts and vampires? In the next hour, you'll meet two people that do, and they might make believer out of you. Also, we'll be reintroducing our partners at the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning into World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your host, Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and today we're going to journey into the shadow of ghosts, Dracula, and criminals. Thanks, dear. Award-winning photographer Jason Dowd is growing in his reputation as a notable paranormal investigator. He has debunked some ghost sightings and confirmed others and even captured some on recording. There's actually three different types of hauntings. You have a residual haunting, you have an intelligent haunting, and then you have a diabolical haunting. Stephen Unger's eclectic experiences and interest in unique adventures has taken him along the path of the Dracula Trail. His new book dispels myths and uncovers truths about Vlad the Impaler. His father was Vlad Dracul, and then the, the son takes the name of the father and adds an age. So Dracul became Dracula. And Dracul means both dragon and devil. Human trafficking is an elusive and, in many cases, an unrecognizable crime. In our efforts to continue educating and raising awareness about this global epidemic, we are pleased to reintroduce our partners at the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. We're living in a time where people are migrating that is, like they have never done it before, and this uh, condition of uh, illegal migration makes people vulnerable to human trafficking. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Jason Dowd is an award-winning photographer whose work has been exhibited throughout the world. He is also a paranormal investigator who has debunked possible ghost sightings, but he admits to having some personal experiences with ghosts, and he's even captured some on recording. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start out, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that you're a photographer and a lot of your works are being shown. Uh, you've been published, San Diego uh, Tribune, I believe, um, published your photograph of Senator Obama at that time who made his first uh, primary stop in, in Tampa and your Coca-Cola vintage photographs hang in the uh, world headquarters in Atlanta. So uh, that's kind of a, you know, you're doing kind of a 180 going from photography to paranormal orbs and things of that sort. Why the switch? Well, I've been doing art ever since I can remember. Um, so that was just something I've, I, I, it's born and bred into me, and it's just something I like to do. However, having personal uh, experiences with paranormal myself when I was probably around seven or eight, um, I actually saw a ghost in the cemetery, and all the, the adults that were with me, uh, of course, said, I didn't see anything. I know they did because they were well, they were looking at it with me, and their their jaws were to the ground just like mine was. And uh, but because I came in a Lutheran, I was born and raised in the Lutheran religion. I wasn't allowed to really talk about it because of the fact that you talk to a priest or, or you talk to the pastor, you go, they're gonna they're gonna try to send you into some into some nut job, uh, nut house. And if I did talk about it in school because I went to a Lutheran school, I was disciplined for it. So I really wasn't able to talk to anybody, and nobody would back me up. And eventually, in 1996, I found that the I, found, I opened up a book that had the exact cemetery in there, and it had a list of people that had eyewitness accounts that that said exactly the same thing I did. 
so what I realized was I didn't want anybody else to think they were nuts like I was. And, uh, it, you know, 10 years for a, ch- for a child just trying to learn things and, and just learning that, you know, something is a little bit off with their religion and everything like that, it's really tough for them to handle. And I don't want people to go through that. So I decided to become a paranormal investigator. And it just so happens that my artwork, happen- which is photography, and that's where my expertise is, happens to be able to be one of the main things that you can document sightings and evidence with if you know how to do it correctly and you can decipher between what is real and what is not. So I use my, I use my art as an expression and I use my, my uh, ability to help people uh, that are going through problems that, that maybe I had or maybe some are similar and maybe some are worse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinking about your early experience in the, in the Lutheran Church, in some ways I'm a little bit surprised to see here that uh, leadership, church leadership, uh, really discouraged uh, you from believing in uh, in orbs because uh, you know as a Christian we believe in, in spiritual warfare we we believe in you know two dimensions and so I'm I'm a little bit surprised that uh, they uh, really didn't support your your sightings. Well, if you even look at the, the, the Catholic Church, you have to you have to really document things, and it almost has to be a demonic presence. They don't believe in human spirits. They, they believe that when you die, you die. You're either in heaven or hell. Same with the Lutheran religion. You either When you die, you're in heaven or hell. Uh, there is no, uh, well, tr- sometimes uh, Catholics believe in purgatory, too. But that was one of the biggest things. Unless it was like a demonic experience, it completely just they overlook it because they don't believe that it's there. So it wasn't a demonic experience. That was the biggest problem. If it was a demonic experience, they probably would have taken me seriously. The Lutheran churches will come out and bless a house or they'll bless a, a property or whatever like whatever they do, but they don't do exorcisms, not like the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church will actually do an exorcism. So it, it's the it's difference of how it goes. The problem with it was is that I wasn't talking demonic. So mm-hmm. by not talking demonic, they didn't believe it, and therefore I was a nut job. And so they don't believe in friendly spirits. I mean, is there such a thing as good spirits and, and, and bad spirits, and are these, uh, these entities, uh, can they be harmful? They can be harmful. There's actually three different types of hauntings. You have a residual haunting, you have a intelligent haunting, and then you have a diabolical haunting. Uh, basically, what you what you get with a um, with a residual haunting is energy that releases itself and plays itself back through, throughout time. So that can happen because your house is based on a quartz mine or a lot of quartz or, or precious metals like uh, like limestone, which captures energy and can actually release it and replay it, just like a movie. There is no spirit there. All it is is just showing something that happened in time over and over and over again. And if you notice, it usually happens about the same time every day. Happens, it happens the exact same thing. It, it's, it's in complete repetition. So that's more paranormal than that is a haunting. Then you have the actual um, inter- uh, intelligent haunting. This is where things fly across the room. You get touched. You get hear things. Uh, you hear walking when nobody's around. Um, you know, all kinds of weird things happen. Things disappear and reappear in places that they weren't. Um, sometimes this can be this can be debunked, but uh, these are the ones that can that are generally friendly. Generally, what they do is they just try to get your attention. They want they need help. They want to talk to you. Something they could actually be interacting with you because they believe that where they are right now is their home, and they don't understand why you're there or why you're not responding to them. Hmm. Sometimes they can get a little angry. Sometimes they get a little bit more violent. But I've never really seen anybody was who was killed over. A, uh, or severely maimed because of a uh, human or non 
human entity that was in their home. And so what, you, what you're describing right now is the, um, the, the theme of The Others, the movie The Others with Nicole Kidman. That's what it sounds like. Exactly. Now, when you go into the, the Amityville Horror or, um, or uh, the, uh, kinetic, uh, the, the uh, Haunting in Connecticut, that was demonic. Those are things that are so powerful, and they're technically, if you believe in the Christian, Christian religions or any type of religion that deals with uh, heaven and hell, those are Satan's helpers. Those can take on any shape. You can't get rid of them very easily. They play on your emotions, and they will do just about everything they can to hurt you. However, there are ways of stopping them and, and not letting them control you. Basically, it's free will. You have the free will to do what, to do what you want. If they're telling you to do something, that's how they that's how they get control of you. So by not doing it and not letting into you, they can't do much. They they may they may try to harm you by scratching you, showing you horrendous things, throw you across the room, stuff like that. But they really can't they can't kill you. They still won't kill you unless they are able to uh, take over your body, possess you, and then you might have a bigger problem because this is where they could. But you also have to give give away your free will. Mm-hmm. I've read about this for a long time by many, many, many experts. So it kind of depends on you, but still, you don't want to be around any of these things because they are very powerful. They're very persuasive, and they're really hard to deal with. And those are the ones I would tend to stay away from. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just thinking about our audience right now, and you know, generally we talk about travel and lifestyle, and certainly this is a, an in- completely different uh, path that we've taken our audience on and uh, you know I'm, I'm sitting here thinking oh my gosh and visualizing you know and thinking about like the Amityville and the others and and uh, I used to think that these were just you know myths these were urban legends and, and what you're telling me is that they're not no I actually live two streets away from the one in, in Southington Connecticut there and I it, the stuff was so was so amazing that it actually made front page news. I used to deliver how I used to deliver papers to the house next door, and every morning, you know, one, at least once a week, there would be a reporter there and documenting something that happened in this house. It even made the the, the nightly news because people were physically getting hurt, cars were starting up and driving themselves through through the walls, and 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 it, it was just crazy. But that was the one that actually was an old uh, funeral home, and all the stuff, all the embalming. Stuff and all the uh, all the uh, autopsy equipment was left in the basement. So there was blood on the walls. I mean, it was very good it was grief. Not taken care of very good. Yeah. Now, uh, what is a uh, what do you do as a paranormal investigator? What is that? Well, basically, there's two things. Some of them I go out and just try to find find ghosts and find evidence that they exist, like a, like a um, like a uh, UFO researcher. Um, there's another kind where you actually go in and you're called in because there's a problem in a house. And when you when that kind of thing happens, you got to go in. I go in with a with a mindset that this place is not haunted. Ninety percent of the time, the house is not haunted, and, and things that may seem paranormal to them could actually be very well explained, like things disappearing and, and reappearing. There's a good chance that you may have picked it up and actually moved it and didn't think you did. So there are there are ways to debunk those. Um, I go in there with a thing called an EMF detector, which is electromagnetic frequency. The theory behind that is that when a ghost uh, decides to appear, it can actually cause electromagnetic waves to, uh, to appear in places that they shouldn't be. Then I also use an EVP, uh, which is electronic, electronic voice phenomenon. This is where you pick up sounds and walking sounds and stuff like that to try to debunk 
where the stuff is coming from and is it real. And actually, you, you have a couple of those. And I, I just want to take a quick listen to, uh, to a few. The first one we have is uh, you've titled Having Any Luck. Let's have a listen and then describe that to me. So I just heard a water stream, or what sounded like a water stream, and uh, a clicking sound, like a photograph was being taken in the background. What actually was I hearing, or what we, what were we actually hearing? The clicking sound was actually me trying to ter- turn off the uh, the recorder because it was one of the last things I did that day. Uh, and, and as I did that, it actually hit my watch. So you're hearing the uh, the, the clicking sound is actually the, the recorder rubbing against my watch. The second part of that that you're hearing is the uh, air conditioning vent above you. That's why it sounds a little bit watery, because um, I was kind of close to a, to a vent. However, even if there was air coming down through it, it wouldn't make that sound. I mean, it was very clear of what it said. So that's, you know, there are ways of debunking that. And sometimes you do hear things that technically aren't there. Sometimes you, get, they're almost, you almost have to really, 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 really concentrate on it to make it out. Now, now, how about this next one, horrifying noise? Let's have a quick listen and then tell me about this one. Sure. What was that and where were you when you recorded it? Same house, different time. Uh, what, I was, what I was actually dealing with was that was, the, more ha- that was the, the, ha- the room that had the most activity in it. And to try to capture some of the stuff that people were saying was happening, we put the recorder down on the bed and walked outside. Um, we had people in the front, we had people in the back. And uh, when we came back in around 2 o'clock in the morning, picked it up and listened to it, we were reviewing everything. About halfway into the tape, this sound came out. Hmm. Now, we were actually listening to this, uh, you know, outside, and it sounds like cats fighting. There was nobody in the house. We barely had nobody in the house, and it was locked up while we were outside. There was nothing that could have hit on the roof or made that type of a sound. There was nothing touching the windows or anything like that. I mean, there's no, there was no foliage anywhere around this, around this room. And if there were cats outside fighting, we would have seen them or heard them because we were outside. So that kind of that how that sound came about, I don't know. The, the the recorder was in the exact same spot when I got in there. It was not touched, and it was not it, it was not thrown around or anything that anything weird like that. So I mean, if you hear something like that, you definitely know it. And and they're not very long recordings, so it's like when they make a sound, they they don't make repetitive sounds. No, they don't. Usually, you ba- sometimes you can go into investigations and sit there for six, seven hours and not catch anything. Usually, when you do hear something, it's very quick, and usually you don't hear it with your own eyes, but these, uh, with your own ears. But these machines can actually pick up a frequency higher than what our ears can hear. This is kind of what you what you would expect with dogs and cats and other animals when they hear those high pitched sounds. You can't hear it, but they do. Mm. So. This is why they're always with their ears are cocked up and they're always looking around and stuff like that. That's one of the reasons. So basically, you're allowing yourself to hear that, but by putting it on on a uh, on an electronic um, recorder, you're actually bringing it down a little bit on the decibels to your level, so you can hear it a little bit better than just walking around to where frequencies are are all over the place. Now, you said you use your art form, photography, uh, in the same realm. How do you do that? Have you exhibited photographs you've taken of of orbs? Or, uh, I mean, how do you use photography? Have you filmed anything? I know you've captured the audio recording, which we just listened to. uh, But what ways do you use your art form? Well, I've only captured one possible ghost. And and actually, I was setting up to take a picture of a 
vintage, uh, of a very historic house, and um, it was in a kitchen that was that was actually broken across. They weren't connected at the time because of fire hazards. So I took it. I took my camera, set it up on the tripod, stepped back a little bit, and I noticed that the thing took a picture. I heard my I heard my my camera click. So I walked over there, and sure enough, the, the the LED screen behind it came on, and there it was. There was a picture, and I'm like, okay, that's really weird. So I clicked and hit my own the button myself. To see, to see if I could duplicate it, and what I got was a mist on the one that took by itself. With it was very illuminated, with no flash. There's no reason for that to happen. The other one I took about a second and a half later had no flash, and there was it was dark in the way it should look, uh, the way that I was setting it up. Is it paranormal? Is it a ghost? I don't know, but it did take a picture, and that was probably one of the most paranormal things I've ever taken a picture of. Never took a picture of an actual ghost, and I've never taken a picture of a real orb. However, I have seen a real orb, and what an orb is, is in a, it's a disembodied ball of, of energy. Orbs are generally a hotter energy. That's why you get a cold spot around it. And when you see an orb, you shouldn't have to use flash to see it. And this is what I try to tell people, especially knowing photography for as long as I have. If you take a picture with flash, you're going to get two things. You're going to get dust that's reflecting back, and that's where you get the little itty-bitty um, like uh, circles that appear all over the place and they look like a fly's eye you know the little diamonds all over inside of it or you get a picture of a bug and that's where you shoot it and you capture it and you in the light reflects off their exoskeleton and bounces back at you so it's very it's very vibrant but if you can't see it with your own eye i don't believe this i don't technically believe it's a true orb so this is how i'm able to use the, the years of experience as, as an artist and and knowing the photography realm to kind of debunk things that really aren't there what what camera do you use? I use uh, I use a variety of, uh, ca- of Canons. Uh, I use the EOS uh, the EOS series, and I have varieties from the early uh, 20Ds down to the 60s and stuff like that. So I have a I have a variety of cameras that I use, and I usually use a professional camera because of the fact that it shows a little bit more. And one of the one of the things that the things that I actually took a picture of, somebody said that there was a um, a face in a window, and you have to stand in this one spot every time. You shoot, you shoot the picture at this window, and there's always a face in it. And I'm like, you know, ghosts just don't do that. They don't, they don't appear on demand every time in the same spot. So, this one lady got in front of me. She had a regular camera. She took a picture, and sure enough, there was a face. I was like, wow, I, I'm, you proved me wrong. But then when I got up there and tried it, same thing, same flash, everything like that. I shot it, and what I got was a picture that did not show a face. It actually showed what the face was, and the face was the lamp that was sitting on the desk behind me. Because of the angle I was shooting at, with the flash that I was hitting, it was reflecting off and, sh- and, and hitting back onto the glass behind it. And it, the way that the way that the because the, um, it was hand handmade glass from the 1800s, it had a ripple effect on it, and that kind of that distorted it enough to make it look like it was an actual uh, face. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I th- either somebody was really relieved or really disappointed. I don't know. I it, Personally, if that were my house, I'd be quite relieved uh, that it was just a lamp. <laughs> so, so, Jason, if somebody, somebody wanted to have you um, investigate whether or not there was paranormal activity in their, their home, I mean, that's something, this is something that you do as well in addition to your photography. You that's what you mean by paranormal investigations. You you uh, determine whether or not there's activity in uh, in a particular space. Is is that 
possible, and how would they contact you? Uh, they can contact me through my studio website if you want. It's uh, www.dowdstudios, D-O-W-D, studios with an S dot com. Uh, you can also submit any type of evidence you have. I'd love to look at it, but I do warn people, you have to be open-minded because I will probably be able to find an explanation for it, and it may not be what you think it is, and that's okay. You know, I don't want people to be discouraged. You can always send me this stuff, and I will tell you my honest 100% opinion, and if I can't figure it out, and if it is something paranormal, I'll definitely tell you. I'm, I'll be the first one to admit I can't figure this out. So, um, you know, I, I hope people that would, would trust me enough to do that. Wow. Well, Jason Dowd, a real-life ghost hunter, thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints. Up next, we'll travel along Dracula's trail with author Stephen Unger. His father was Vlad Dracul, and then the son takes the name of the father last name. So Dracul became Dracula. Dracul means both dragon and devil. As World Footprints continues. Aloha! Caleb. from Honolulu, Hawaii. We love World Footprints Radio. Are you looking for a logo or a website design? Then look no further. Go to www.logoin.com. I'll spell it out for you. That's L-O-G-O-I-N-N dot com. And order a custom logo design for only $45 or a custom-built website bundle deal for less than $300. Alternatively, you can call us on toll-free 1-800-941-0708. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. My name's Paul from Billings, Montana, and I'm on a spiritual sojourn here, and I've managed to meet some pretty inspiring people. I'm Ian and Tanya of World Footprints, and I hope that you guys can get out of them what I did. Thanks. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Stephen Unger has traveled extensively in North and South America, Western Europe, Israel, and Romania. But his life journeys are even more intriguing. He was one of a handful of white students at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, a member of the Bear Tribe, a California commune that tried sharecropping, goat herding, and living in teepees. So it's not surprising that this adventurer also sought to uncover the truth and myths behind Vlad the Impaler, a.k.a. Dracula. In his new book, In the Footsteps of Dracula, A Personal Journey and Travel Guide, Stephen reveals the history of Dracula in a surprisingly scholarly fashion. Steve, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you. Now, are you speaking to me from a lighted room? You're not behind any dark curtains or in a, in a basement uh, area? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, under electric light, so that's all right. Okay. <laughs> I'm just checking. <laughs> you know, I grew up as a kid. I mean, there's been um, there's been a an interest uh, many many years in 
you know, these uh, supernatural creatures. And as a child, I remember growing up and, you know, watching with my dad, um, Dark Shadows and Barnabas Jones, who I think is one of the most famous uh, soap opera, well, certainly the most famous soap opera vampire. Um, But there has been a lifelong interest, and you say that uh, this book and and, and your travels on uh, the Dracula Trail has really become an obsession. What inspired you, and why is it of such interest to you? I was uh, was doing an article uh, on... uh on the Yorkshire coast in England, and there's a town called Whitby uh, that's um, near the Scottish border uh, in Yorkshire, and um, I knew, well, all over the town, they they let you know that uh, Bram Stoker uh, placed three of the chapters in his novel Dracula in Whitby, and that he actually discovered the name Dracula in Whitby and uh, and wrote. uh, quite a bit of uh, of the novel when he was vacationing with the, he was working for uh, 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 an actor a Shakespearean actor and uh, managing uh, the theater uh, for him uh, during most of the year and then he would summer with his family in, in Whitby and uh, there's a lot of legends uh, in Whitby uh, there uh, it was a town that was uh, sacked by the Vikings and uh, many times and went through the Black Plague and uh, there's a, a cemetery uh, around a, a, an old church that goes back uh, a thousand years and uh, and, the, and the cemetery the, the tombstones are all blackened with, with age and, and, and the North Sea winds and uh, a lot of those uh, tombstones go back to the Black Plague, and in uh, uh, in Bram Stoker's novel, he has um, Count Dracula uh, come on a boat, and uh, from from Transylvania uh, via the the uh, Black Sea, and he has killed everybody on the ship uh, except the captain, and he saved the captain for last, and then. The ship was wrecked upon the shore, hmm. and uh, he called uh, the ship the uh, by by an acronym of uh, of the actual ship that ran aground right right there. Uh, it was a, a Russian ship, and and there's a photograph um, yeah, in in my book of of the actual wreck. But uh, he turns it into the, the ship that Dracula lands in. And then he has Dracula take the form of uh, a giant black dog. And the black dog goes back to the time of the, the Vikings. And, and, and they were uh, terrorizing the towns enough, but then they had these great big black dogs called Vargas Towns. Count Dracula takes the shape of, of one of these uh, demon dogs or, or, or Vargas Towns and run up the side of the hill and then go under the grave of a suicide. And, uh, and that's where he would sleep during the day, and then he would come out at, at night. And two of the, the main characters, uh, uh, Mina Murray, and who was later to become Mina Harker, and, uh, and, and her friend would, would sit on a bench 
and overlook the, the harbor, and Dracula would be right under them while, as they were sitting on the bench uh, in, in the grave of the suicide. In Transylvania and, and even in Whitby uh, have kept their, their, their character from the 19th century when, uh, mm-hmm. when Dracula was written. So explain the correlation between um, Vlad the Impaler and Dracula. Vlad was a, he was a real-life character, yes? He was a prince who was born in Transylvania, and uh, uh, Bram Stoker uh, came across the name uh, of Vlad Dracula in in a little library in in Whitby. And he knew uh, from a book that he read that was actually written uh, around 1800 that uh, Vlad had uh, fought against the, the Turks and uh, and that the name uh, Dracul and he took his father was Vlad Dracul and then the, the son takes the name of the father and adds an age so Dracul became Dracula and Dracul means both dragon and devil and his father was in the order of the dragon mm-hmm. and as he uh, he was given that uh, that honor um, because uh, the, the order of the dragon were people that, that had showed bravery in, in fighting against the, the Turkish Empire and uh, but that order of the dragon goes all the way back to the original inhabitants of Transylvania who were the Dacians and they would paint themselves blue and ingest hallucinogenic mushrooms and put on the skin of a wolf and ride into battle uh, on horseback. And so when the Romans invaded uh, what, what is now Transylvania, they would see these, what they thought were, were wolves on, on horseback coming after them. And because they were, uh, they had taken these hallucinogenic mushrooms, they, they were completely fearless and they believed they were wolves. And so, uh, and there, their flag was the wolf dragon that had the head of a wolf and the tail of a dragon and that and then and you can still see that uh, in the remains of prehistoric temples uh, I, I have a picture of, of a wolf dragon carved into the of, 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 of a prehistoric temple yeah you refer to the wolf dragon quite a bit in in your book and and that's why I was asking uh, you know if uh, the the dogs that accompanied uh, Dracula were were that, but now I understand where they come from or where that comes from. Yeah, that's a, uh, yeah that's from the uh, from the Vargas towns that the, that the Vikings had. But uh, Bram Stoker kind of he he, he knew um, that uh, he was intrigued by by Transylvania as, uh, as a place because nobody, it was very mysterious at, 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 at that time, kind of uncharted territory. And he was intrigued that the, the name Dracul also means devil as well as dragon. And from uh, his research, uh, which, which was kind of limited, he knew that uh, that Vlad Dracula, uh, Prince Dracula, was uh, was a prince, and he fought against the church, and he was also betrayed by his own brother, mm-hmm. because he and his brother, uh, Vlad Dracula and his brother, 
were given as hostages to the Turkish Sultan by their father um, in return for uh, the Sultan's armies not attacking Wallachia, where, where Dracula's father was a friend. And he, he was released uh, eventually uh, when his father was killed, uh, and the thought was by the Sultan was that he would he would take over the, uh, the kingdom from from the, um, uh, the Hungarian who had killed his, his father for the for the princedom, mm-hmm. and then uh, continue to uh, give the Sultan ten thousand gold ducats a year um, in, in payment, and and his brother Radu Radu the Handsome. Uh, stayed behind, and he became a member of the, the Janissary Corps, which was like the French Foreign Legion for the Turkish Sultan. And eventually, his brother Radu came to the fortress at, at Poyanari. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just surprised at how, how uh, well, I'm not surprised at how in-depth your research went, um, but, you know, when we think about Dracula, we think about this mythical creature, but there's there's a very interesting history befo- behind the development of this uh, this creature, and so uh, as a pseudo historian, I'm, I'm sitting here enjoying um, and soaking in what you're sharing. And I'm just curious: you traveled what you call the Dracula Trail. Is there such a thing? And uh, if not, where did your travels take you? Well, there there, there is such a thing, and there there are tourist. Um agencies, uh, and, and I mentioned one. Uh, my book is written uh, primarily for the independent traveler, because uh, in, in my travel writing, and I, I, I've written uh, about uh, bicycling from Madrid to London and from Copenhagen to Paris, and uh, other um, other uh, shorter bike trails in the U.S., uh, and uh, tree soaring and, and other types of, of uh, travel adventure, but what I always do is I, I, I tell how somebody can do it independently uh, using public transportation and, and, or bicycling and, and, and uh, going very cheaply. Um, and also I take a lot of pictures and also I give the, the historical background of the places. For example, in biking over the Spanish Pyrenees, there's a place where Roland uh, held off the Saracens at the time of Charlemagne, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and there's and then in, in Racamadour, which is which is in France, not far from that pass, they have what they say is a sword of Roland. Well, it's this giant sword that's buried into the mountainside. Uh, I you know it, it may it, who knows what it really is, but it's but it's up there, kind of unreachable, and and there's this giant hilt of the sword. You can see that? You can see it, yeah. Wow. And, and so so I combine all that, and, and, and that's what I did with this book. But I do mention, for, for people that want to, you know, that want a guided tour, and, and instead of uh, going independently on public transportation, um, one, one tour company in particular, uh, that will take you to the places uh, that have to do with either the fictional Count Dracula uh, for example, uh, near the streets at the, at the Borgo Pass, that's where Bram Stoker placed Count, the castle of Count Dracula. Well, in 1897, when the book came out, it was just uh, uh, 
a mountaintop, you know, in 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 Transylvania, and there was yeah you know, n- nothing in particular on that mountaintop. Well, now there's the Hotel Castle Dracula on that spot, you know, mm-hmm. and you can see there, and and uh, you know, so it's you know life imitating art. Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of uh, Dracula castles throughout Europe, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious why. I told you a while ago about one that I went through, uh, toured outside of Bucharest in Romania, uh, and it was a very eerie castle with very narrow uh, and hidden stairwells, and so I, you know, I understand why this uh, occupant uh, could... Trans, uh, travel from room to room in a very stealthy manner. Uh, but I'm wondering why there are so many castles throughout Europe and uh, formal Eastern Europe as well uh, that um, claim to be Dracula's home. Well, it adds a certain cachet. To, uh, that the castle that, that, that you mentioned in, in Braun is a, a very picturesque castle and uh, so it, 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 it looks like some place it could be Dracula's castle, but it isn't. <laughs> uh-huh. you know, but, uh, well, for example, and, and also, for example, if you travel in the Holy Land, you know, if you travel in, in, in Israel and other parts of, of the Middle East, uh, there's, uh, you know, maybe 10, 12 spots along the Jordan River. They say this is where John the Baptist John the Baptist uh, baptized Christ, you know, and then you go a few miles down, and they say, "Well, this is it," and then there is a souvenir stand, you know, at each place, and uh, you know, so they're going to, and, and especially uh, with Romania uh, having endured the Ceausescu regime and uh, and and having to start from uh, a, a place. Of, of, of less infrastructure than, than other uh, Eastern European countries. Um, they were, you know, under, uh, you know, communist rule, but it, it wasn't as bad as the Ceausescu's. Uh, mm-hmm. But what, for, he, he uh, Ceausescu built what he called the, the, what he called the People's Palace, and, and now it's the Palace of Parliament. And it's the second biggest building in the world after the Pentagon. And uh, and, and he drained the, the country's treasury to build it. There's chandeliers as big as houses. And, and uh, it's just very opulent and leveled uh, you know, uh, almost a, a square mile of, of, of buildings that to build it and and the people and, and to pay for it or partially pay for it he, he wouldn't allow people to keep their own food they had to export food and, and the, uh, you know the food that they were growing in order to, to pay the treasury back and then he would he had tv crews go into grocery stores and he had uh painted styrofoam uh, in the shape of vegetables and fruits and mm. it all food we have for our people and so they they had to uh, so and it's remarkable how how uh, ingenious and, and um, uh, uh, 
creative uh, people are in, 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 in starting up uh, little businesses. And, and yeah. But you know, the tourist dollar is really, uh, or, or, or lira or pound or euro is, is very uh, valuable. In, in, indeed, and you know, Ceausescu, I think, was uh, represented, in my opinion, a modern-day uh, Dracula, truly uh, sucked the blood out of uh, his country. We will have a link to uh, your book, In the Footsteps of Dracula, on your guest page and this show page. Uh, but Steve uh, Unger, thank you so much, and I'm uh, happy to talk to you, certainly during the day. Okay, thank you very much. Coming up, we reintroduce our partners at the United Nations Global Initiative to fight human trafficking in an effort to continue raising awareness about this global crime. We're living in a time where people are migrating that is like they have never done it before, and this that condition of uh, illegal migration makes people vulnerable to human trafficking. Next as World Footprints continues. I'm Courtney Moles. I am with Philco Economic Growth Council in Malta, Montana. I am a transplant from New Orleans, and Montana is a beautiful state. I listen to World Footprints Radio. Don't have the time to give back to the community? No time to socialize or network? Then volunteer with One Brick. Volunteer only when it fits your schedule, and then join us for food, drinks, and great conversation afterward. It's a great way to meet new people, have fun, and help the community. Join us at www.onebrick.org. That's www.onebrick.org. One Brick. Volunteering made easy. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hi, I'm Carl Mann, Fort Peck, Montana. I'd like to invite you here. It's a beautiful place, hunting, fishing, summer playhouse theater. I'd like you to listen to World Footprints. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Human trafficking is the largest and fastest growing criminal industry in the world. It's worth an estimated $32 billion each year, and it affects all ethnic groups, all genders, and all age groups across every country in the world. As responsible travelers, there's a lot we can do to fight this awful crime, from raising awareness to reporting suspected criminal activity and asking the right questions. World Footprints has recently partnered with the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, also known as UN GIFT, as part of our commitment to join this battle for human rights. We are pleased to introduce two of our UN GIFT partner representatives, Livia Wagner and Syria Gastelum, who will share some of the programs and resources available through UN GIFT to help you help fight crime. Welcome, ladies. Hi. Livia, I, I think many people would be surprised to learn how big an industry human trafficking is. And for those who may not be aware of this crime, please describe what it actually is. Give this, this horrible crime a face. Yeah, human trafficking is a global phenomenon. There is almost no country that is not related to human trafficking. And 
almost every country in this world is either a source, a transit, or a destination country. That means when talking about human trafficking, we're having different forms of exploitation. I think that's very important to mention. One major form of exploitation is the sexual exploitation of women, girls, and also young boys or men. Another form of exploitation is uh, labor exploitation. That means people working in sweatshops, people being trafficked uh, from one country or within a country to being exploited um, related to labor issues. But of course, there are also many other forms of exploitation like forced marriage, organ trafficking, child soldiers, and begging, pickpocketing. So human trafficking has different forms of exploitation, and um, all the all people that are trafficked are lured into a situation that they assume that they are going to be brought to a country or to another city within the same country to work, for instance, as a waitress, and then they have to face the situation that they're going to be exploited. Mm. So I think there are many different forms and many different stories. I think something else that would surprise some of our listeners is that it is the fastest growing criminal industry in in the world. Why is that? It's it's difficult to say um, because we don't have um, correct statistics or numbers because not every country has a legislation in place. So that's why very often people are victims of trafficking. But if there is no law against trafficking, then these people can or if people or traffickers cannot be convicted. So that's why it's difficult to say how many people UN GIFT launched in 2009 the first independent global report where 155 countries have been covered. Um, and this gives a slight indication of how many people have been trafficked and this, that this is a rising crime, let's say. We could also say that because it is a, it is a crime, a global crime that is affected for so, by so many external factors such as, you know, when there's an economic uh, crisis, we can see probably indications that it, this could be related to increases in forced labor. Mm-hmm. We're living in a time where people are migrating that is, like they have never done it before. And this uh, condition of uh, illegal migration makes people vulnerable to human trafficking. So we have a different set of factors that are indicating that this crime is growing. And another another issue that relates to this is also that, fortunately, our awareness of it is growing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, programs like yours and your audience will help us move towards this effort because the more, the more we're aware of it, the more we realize how big it is and how it is all around us. Syria, in, in terms of understanding human trafficking, there are a lot of misperceptions out there, a lot a lot of people uh, don't really think of this as a global issue, associating it with uh, lower income and third world countries. Why do you think that's the case and what is it going to take to really get people to realize just how huge this issue is? Well, it, it is uh, interesting this that you mentioned because some studies um, indicate that, for example, the U.S. could be perhaps the country with most incidents of human trafficking. And it's, it's a tricky issue because, like, I, like, like my partner was saying, there are not many evidence-based statistics on the problem. But this is certainly not an issue that affects third world countries because, sure, in some cases, people from third world countries or developing countries are brought into developing countries to work. Mm-hmm. Um, they're brought in illegally. For example, we have the case of domestic services 
Domestic servitude is when people are brought into, let's say, European countries or North America to work as maids and stay-home maids, and they they end up trapped in a situation where they're removed from their passports, they're obliged to stay, they have to work every day of the week, they are not paid their salaries, and and it also reflects on the on the products that we use in developing countries. What are we buying? Where, where was it made? Who made it? And what kind of labor was used into? And like I said, there's so many types of uh, or phases to human trafficking, like sexual exploitation. Sexual exploitation, that is a problem that we can see almost everywhere in the world. In addition to the lack of awareness, one of the major barriers is how this crime is prosecuted or not being prosecuted in countries or cultural differences where people don't look at it as a crime or as a form of a serious social malaise. What is it going to take to uh, change that, uh, particularly on the law enforcement side? I think here, um, talking about the law enforcement, it's very important to focus on capacity building. As I was saying before, many countries don't have the legislation and they don't, um, they haven't signed the, the protocol, the so-called Palermo Protocol, um, which was elaborated by the UN. And by not having the legislation, people are not aware what trafficking is and, of course, cannot prosecute it. So I think the first step is to train law enforcement, to train um, police, border migration officers. So I think this is very, very important so that they know what trafficking is and how they can combat it or how they can prosecute it. But I think here the most important thing is, and that's also the nature about gift is, or about human gift, is that uh, partnership is a crucial, crucial thing for combating trafficking. It's not just the state. Trafficking cannot be tackled just from one sector. That means by governments or by the private sector or by civil society organizations. It is something that has to be combat it jointly. That means all the different stakeholders have to work together. And of course, for us, it's a great opportunity to reach out to the broad public, like through your program, because this is how we can educate people and they can um, raise this with their own governments, that there is something to do also with the private sector, that people have to be more aware to buy it responsible. And I think, you know, as we've talked about previously, the just the, and, and you just touched on it, the lack of awareness. And I wanted to share a, a story which you guys may or may not have heard uh, that recently occurred that shows how key just being aware and acting is. I don't know if you've heard, but a few months ago, October, I believe, there was a, a man and a, a little boy, and I, I think it was either in our area in D.C. or Philadelphia, there's been two different accounts or reports about this, but they were running to the into the airport trying to catch a flight uh, from this quarter, the northeast quarter, down to West Palm Beach. And the ticket agent asked the man for the little boy's name, and he couldn't immediately tell, uh, say his name. Instead, he rifled through papers to try to, to find something with his name on it, I suppose. And one of the passengers, fellow passengers behind him, who happens to be... Or 
or happened to be a flight attendant um, noticed this and thought this was quite quirky. And so when they were on the plane, uh, this uh, other passenger, she happened to sit next to them as well. She asked the little boy, so are you excited about going to Florida? And the little boy responded, he's nine years old, and he said, well, I thought we were going to North Carolina. And at that point, the the fellow passenger uh, alerted the airlines and and they alerted the authorities in uh, in West Palm Beach, Florida, where they were flying to. Uh, and the man was arrested. And it turned out that this little boy was a victim of human trafficking. And, you know, because that passenger took awareness, she saved a life. And, and she, you know, the, the thing is, she happened to, she works with another one of our partners, airline ambassadors. And so she was already trained or aware of signs, telling signs. Um, and I think, you know, just that, that awareness is very, very important. UN Gift, I know you have a lot of uh, resources and tools to help people look for the red flag signs and, and what have you. Can either one of you talk about the resources that you have available on your site? Yeah, we have elaborated specifically for the private sector a training material because we think that, of course, it's very important that the private sector and specifically the, the tourism um, and transportation sector is aware of human trafficking. And I think that the example that you gave now is a very good example showing that um, not just normal or regular passengers but also the flight attendants um, or employees of any company, they can be... They should be aware of it, and then the next step is to alert um, the officials. So with this, what we have been implementing now, our e-learning tool on human trafficking for the private sector, we hope that we can get the message across to many different companies um, to train their staff and to see how themselves, how they themselves, they can, um, they can get the message across, but also to to be to keep their eyes open and I think for passengers it's very, very important to of course know about this and keep their eyes open because really what you were saying this can save a life and I think that's very important. And and I think uh, something very key for your audience to realize is that human beings who are being trafficked, human beings who are on their way to become slaves are traveling in the same planes, in the mm. same buses, yeah. in the same trains that we all do. I mean, I don't know how many times we have been sitting next to a person who was on its way to hell, and just because we were not aware or just because we didn't realize these signs, we missed the, ch- missed the chance to save a life like this woman did. As we've been discussing this issue of human trafficking and its different forms, whether it's outright slavery, involuntary servitude, child exploitation, sex crimes, do we have a sense as to how much of the world's population is affected by this, is involved with this in, in, in terms of the scope of the problem? Well, we only have what is the official number. We have a number that says that at the moment 2.5 million people are enslaved in human trafficking. 2.5 million people. So we, we know that that uh, number can be double, triple, quadruple. Like I said, that's the official number. The number that we get from police reports, from convictions, from cases that uh, have actually been resolved. But the number 
I mean, if we need, we're comparing this industry to the drug industry, to the arms trade, it's so big that there are not really exact numbers that can give us an indication of really how many people are victims of human trafficking. Uh, you know, I was uh, on the um, U.S. Department of Justice and uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services recently, uh, just doing my own independent research. And uh, what I found is that um, in looking at our country, the United States, there's an estimated 17,500 uh, 17, people are trafficked into the U.S. each year. 800,000 people are trafficked worldwide and I think I, I read somewhere where at this very moment there's about uh, 12 point in total 12.5 million people um, who are victims of human trafficking and I think that number is astounding um, and and really uh, unacceptable and I, I I think you know again lack of awareness and in um, you know lack of prosecution etc uh, apathy, all of these things add to to this growing number. I I also pulled and I want to read this this quote that uh, I got from the U.S. Department of Justice website. Uh, it was taken from somebody who uh, was arrested, and uh, he's actually a, Utah, a retired U.S. school teacher. And and I just want to read this because it it shows in some ways, the mindset of these, the, the perpetrators, uh, the criminals. And, and I was just quite shocked. And I want to get your, uh, your thoughts on this after, uh, after I read this quote. This US, retired U.S. school teacher says, and I quote, On this trip, I've had sex with a 14-year-old girl in Mexico and a 15-year-old in Colombia. I'm helping them financially. If they don't have sex with me, they may not have enough food. If someone has a problem with me doing this, let UNICEF feed them, unquote. Um, yeah, of course. We, we come across um, a lot of these, of these quotes and what people think, and um, they think that they're helping people. But we have to be very clear, it's a human rights violation in many, many different terms because a child is to be is a person until the age of 18. So it's sexual abuse, it's abuse of a person in many, many terms. And it's not right that this person is helping the person, this, the, the young girls, he's abusing them, full stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, as, as travelers and as global citizens, we have a responsibility every time we travel to not only be aware but to spread awareness about this crime and act accordingly. And I'm encouraging uh, our listening audience today to talk to your family and friends and utilize the resources available to you on ungift.org and worldfootprints.org because you could save a life. And Livia in uh, Syria, I thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints and, and sharing about the resources you have available to help all of us fight this horrible crime. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to learn more about human trafficking or if you'd like more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report, giving you the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. While there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again real soon. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, there are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.